We are going to be in Acts chapter 17 today, so if you need a Bible, you can grab one from the resource table. If not, just flip open your, uh, your Bible app and go to Acts 17, 1 through 15. And uh, by way of reminder, I wasn't here, but I, I was fortunate enough to listen to his sermon. Martin last week did a great job covering the conversion of the Philippian jailer, which is a great story. Um, but one of the things he talked about was the openness of that Gentile jailer to the gospel, to Jesus, as a result of the faith that he saw in the lives of Paul and Silas, who, remember, didn't try and run and escape their difficult circumstances, but they stayed put purposefully, believing that God had purpose for them in the midst of their difficult trials and tribulations. And that led to him being open to the gospel and eventually coming to faith in his whole household, coming to faith. And today we're going to travel a little farther down the Macedonian coast. I've got a map that's going to pop up behind me. And you can kind of see, uh, well, actually you can't see. It's not up at the top. But that yellow in the top left is Macedonia. It kind of wraps around. So we're going to be just at the top of that purple line, a little bit farther down the coastline in Thessalonica and Berea. Those are the two towns we're looking at today. And our passage today is really a tale of two cities, to, to use Dickens' book title. It's a tale of two cities with two very different Jewish communities. The Jewish community in Thessalonica, the Thessalonian synagogue, and the Jewish community in Berea, the Berean synagogue. Very different, uh, and, and different along the lines of being more or less open-minded to Christian teaching and to the gospel. And that's what we're going to look at today. So as I, as I talk about open-mindedness, in case you haven't noticed, our culture is completely obsessed with open-mindedness. I mean, I was just like Googling bumper stickers that, that refer to open-mindedness and quotes that refer to open-mindedness, and everybody's all about open-mindedness in our culture. But we need to clarify what we mean by that, because I think what we wrongly think, typically in our culture, uh, what we wrongly think about is that open-mindedness is an end unto itself. That the whole purpose of a human being is to be open-minded. But in reality, open-mindedness is really a means to an end. And I, I really like the quote, there's a, a G.K. Chesterton who was uh, a mentor of C.S. Lewis and he was a journalist and he was just really good at like, these little quips. But he, he, uh, he gave this quip about open-mindedness many, many decades ago. He said, merely having an open mind is nothing. That's shocking to our culture. What? Open-mindedness in and of itself is good, right? No. He says, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. And I love that analogy. It's just like walking around with your mouth hanging open and putting food in your mouth and never swallowing, never closing to swallow it. And I think too many people in our culture are just unprepared to close their mind, to clamp down on something solid. We, we end up in this perpetual state of open-mindedness, as Chesterton was talking about. Or I think on the flip side, I think too many people are, are hesitant or unprepared to open their closed mind that has clamped onto something to take hold of something better and more solid, to make room for the better. And I think both of those issues, not being willing to close our minds on something solid and not being willing to open our minds to clamp down on something more solid, that's a problem we face, both inside and outside the church. And as Christians, we preach the gospel 
because we believe that Christ is the only really solid thing to wrap our heads around, not to mention our hearts and our lives. That's what we believe. We believe Jesus to be the wisdom of God, Paul says, and, and as John writes, the way, the truth, and the life. The only truly solid thing on which to wrap our minds and hearts and lives around. And that's why Paul was proclaiming Jesus in Thessalonica and Berea. He was on a missionary journey because he believed that he had the solution to sin and death and Satan. That he had salvation to offer people that needed to be saved, that needed to be forgiven, that needed to be restored to a relationship with their creator. And therefore, he gave his life to that project. He wanted his fellow Jews, because remember, Paul was a Jew. He wanted his fellow Jews, as well as their Gentile neighbors in these towns and cities, to open their minds to his biblical teaching as he unpacked the Hebrew scriptures so that they might close their minds on the good news that Jesus Christ died for their sins and rose again. That was his passion. And the big idea for today is that biblical truth is challenging. The very nature of Scripture is challenging for everybody, for all of us, Christians and non-Christians alike. So if biblical truth is challenging, we need to pray for open minds. The open-mindedness that we just discussed. Open minds will receive the challenge of biblical teaching. I'm not saying that everyone with an open mind will ultimately clamp down on the personal work of Jesus Christ and believe in him. Like, we're not guaranteed that. But we have to show people that solid thing that is Christ and his person and work, the gospel. So, open minds will receive that challenge, but folks, closed minds do not like to be challenged. People that want to keep their mind closed and clamp down on whatever that thing is, whatever that belief, that philosophy, that whatever, they will reject biblical teaching because it will be an affront to what they've closed their minds down on. And that's exactly what we see happening in today's passage. The first thing we'll look at in the first half of our passage is that closed minds reject Christian teaching. Remember, you can, be, you can have a closed mind and be open-minded. It just means that when something comes along that challenges what you've clamped down on, you're willing to go, which one's more solid? Which one makes the most sense? Which one should I be clamping down on, right? But, but closed, perpetually closed minds reject Christian teaching. And this is what we see happening with Paul in Thessalonica. So look with me at verses 1 through 9. I'm going to read through the whole uh, section, 1 through 9, and I'll give a little brief commentary and then we'll jump into it and unpack it. Uh, chapter 17, verse 1. Luke writes this, he says, Now when they had traveled, that is Paul and Silas and Timothy, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, uh, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, we've already seen this throughout Acts, he visited them, that is the, the synagogue of the Jews, and for three Sabbaths, that's three Saturdays, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. That's the Hebrew Bible, that's the Law and the Prophets, okay? So he's reasoning with them for three consecutive weeks from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ, that word Christ is, is the same as Messiah, it, it basically means the anointed one of God, okay, that the, the Hebrew scriptures are talking about. 
So he's explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. Some of the Jews in that synagogue in Thessalonica, some were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a significant number of the leading or prominent women in that Gentile society. And then in 5, we see a but. So here's a, here's a, a contrast. But the Jews, meaning the, the, the majority of the Jews in that uh, Thessalonian synagogue, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men, some rabble from the marketplace, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. That is, um, they uh, yelled and shouted and caused a disturbance, okay? They set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason and were seeking to bring them out to the people. Jason is the host of, of Paul and, and Silas and Timothy, okay? So they attack his house, and they're seeking to bring them out to the people. They want to get their hands on Paul and the rest. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brothers, some other people who were believers, before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world, literally they, they've subverted the world or they've overthrown the world. Uh, this is the first claim. These men who have upset the world have come here also to Thessalonica. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason, kind of like posting bail, when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Okay, let's look at this. Great passage. So in verses 1 to 3, what is Paul doing? Paul's doing what he does best. Paul's doing what we see him doing constantly when he goes into a new town. He's reasoning from the Hebrew Scriptures with his fellow Jews in the synagogue. That's the first place he goes to. He wants to see his fellow Jews coming to faith in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. And so he's, he's laying out a case. That's what it means when it says he's... Uh, he's uh, the, the, the Greek behind what we read is that he's laying out a case. He's presenting the evidence. He's commending the evidence to these, to these people in the synagogue for trusting in Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, by showing how the Hebrew Scriptures anticipated a Messiah who would have to suffer and die and rise again. He's saying three things. He's saying, look, guys, the Hebrew Scriptures are anticipating this anointed one of God who's going to come and he's going to, he's going to bring God's justice and righteousness and and there was an anticipation in the first century for a Messiah, sometimes two different Messiahs, depending on how they interpreted the Hebrew Scriptures. So that wasn't an issue. They were all looking for Messiah. That's why they thought Jesus was Messiah until he went and got crucified. And they all thought, well, that doesn't fit with our understanding of the Messiah. So what, what Paul is saying here is, look, the Hebrew Scriptures say there's going to be a Messiah, the anointed one of God, who's going to come and do all these wonderful things. But look at the scriptures again. It says that that same Messiah has to die. I mean, think about the suffering servant passages in Isaiah. That this, this one, this anointed one of God, the servant of the Lord, is going to take on the sins of his people. And he's going to die. And then it talks about him coming back to life. 
And so Paul is, is, is showing them the Hebrew scriptures saying, you know, you've missed this. The Messiah has to die and then be resurrected. And therefore, Jesus, who's the only person who ever claimed to be the Messiah and then died and then got resurrected, is the Christ. And so after he lays this out in verse 4, we see many Gentiles joining the Christians. So Gentiles, some of them are God-fearing Gentiles, which means they might have gone to the synagogue, they might not have become uh, Jewish and gone through circumcision and all these things, but they might be inclined to worship the God of Israel. Okay? And then there's all these prominent leading women in the, in the society there in Thessalonica. And they're coming in droves to faith in Christ. Now Paul might not, they might not have knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures like the Jews in the synagogue would have had, but they're hearing this message of hope in Jesus Christ. And I don't care if you're Jewish or Gentile, I don't care if you're rich or poor, everybody needs hope of eternal life and forgiveness and a reconciled relationship with their Creator. And so they're coming to faith in droves in Thessalonica. And then we see only some Jews coming to faith. And that's really important that you see that word, some, joining them. So in verse 5, most of the Thessalonian Jews are jealous of what Paul is accomplishing. So they watch some of their own synagogue members moving out. And when it means they were joined, when it says they were joined to Paul and Silas, that could be referring to the fact that they stopped attending the synagogue with that old teaching, and they started meeting with these new believers and with Paul and Silas and Timothy to hear this new teaching about Jesus. And so they might be seeing the very members, some of them at least, of their synagogue going to that other church down the road, you know? And so they're, they're, they're jealous. And they're probably zealous thinking that these guys are blaspheming their God based on their understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures. All right? So they're, they're jealous and probably also zealous to defend God's honor, so to speak. Uh, they were mad. So they grabbed some shady guys. Why, why not? Hey, we need some help here. How are we going to stir things up in the city? Let's go get those shady guys at the marketplace who are probably Gentiles. And let's, you know, maybe give them some cash to help us form a mob and cause a real commotion to see if we can't get these guys kicked out of our city. And that's exactly what they do. They get these shady guys, they form a mob to attack the Christians, okay? It's like mob mentality, 101. And ironically, Paul's opponents, and this is so funny, the language in, in Luke's inspired text here. It says that actually Paul's opponents that are forming the mob, they're the ones setting the city in an uproar. And they're the ones stirring up the crowd and the city authorities. But then what they do is, is they get before the authorities, and what do they say? These guys are disturbing the peace with their Christian teaching. Their peaceful preaching and teaching of Jesus is, is, is just causing the world to be in an uproar. Right? How ironic. They're upsetting the world. And they also accuse them of a more serious thing, which was sedition. Uh, treason, uh, saying that there is another king besides Caesar. This was serious stuff. And so these magistrates are, 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 are basically having to deal with two accusations. They're throwing our town into confusion, which the magistrates are in charge of making sure things remain peaceful. But then also, if word gets back to Caesar that they're setting up another king, or they're anticipating a rebellion or revolution, this is, this is trouble for us. And you see this time and time again with Jesus. Jesus in his persecution and suffering and death, you see it with his. They were preaching a Messiah. A Messiah is a king. It's the son of David, King David. So yes, they did believe that Jesus was king, but not in the way that these people. 
from the Old Testament, the big tall guy coming on the white horse and defeat the Romans. But Jesus knew that he had the first suffering servant to die for our sins before he could come as a conquering king to usher in his kingdom and righteousness and justice and judgment. Okay? And so, so they're not believing the things that they're being accused of believing. In fact, think about what Peter writes. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 that's where he says in the first century to not to do what they do or, to, or to, to say that injustice is justice or something like that, but he's saying that they're in a position of authority and you should show them honor just for the sake God's allowing them to be in authority over the empire. And so Bowsers, okay, if anything, they're encouraging their people to show respect to the emperor. All right? So Christian teaching... As we see here, it is challenging, and some closed-minded people will simply reject it out of hand. So in our passage, the, the Thessalonian Jews have no interest in mounting a... ...a, a theological, biblical... You know, case that's, that's watertight that can compete with what Paul's teaching? No, they don't. What do they do? Instead of mounting a scriptural defense, they cause a social disturbance. So they basically get really loud and try to stir everybody in the community up against the Christians. Loud, yell, accuse, form a mob, you know, level accusations, get everyone all juiced up, you know. Everybody loves a mob, right? And so that's what they do. And some things never change. I mean, think about social media or our modern news media. I'm not one of these guys that's like super negative on everything in the news, but let's be honest. I don't care if you're progressive or conservative or whatever. Every news outlet I turn on these days is not about just raw journalistic, you know, integrity. It's, it's like a, you know... Jerry Springer show, you know, it's like, it's nuts. It's all entertainment, it's all emotion and fear-mongering, and I, I mean, I can't watch the news anymore. I just can't. I get all, like, my blood pressure spikes, you know? And, and I think fewer and fewer people really want to engage in civil public discourse to weigh the respective merits of various philosophical and theological perspectives. Guys, our country was founded on that. The Federalist Papers, and, and just all over the place. People are, are arguing philosophies of government and, you know, theology, and, and this is something we used to do. Fewer and fewer people have an appetite or an attention for that, and that's a sad thing, because what replaces that? It's much easier if you want to try and convince people to follow you, or you want to try and just destroy your opponent. It's so much easier just to get really loud and yell a lot and make people anxious and fearful and level a bunch of accusations and, and, and then yell some more and, and then, you know, figure out strategic ways to, like, touch people's fears and anxieties and kind of, you know, get, get the frothing, right? People don't even know the issues, and they're all just piping mad about them, right? And that's what happens today, and I think we're seeing this right now with the Dobbs decision. We're going to talk a lot of it. We have talked a lot. We are going to talk a lot about the Dobbs decision. 
And when Justice Alito wrote out the Dobbs decision, if you haven't read it, you should. He doesn't argue from a biblical theological perspective. He argues from a legal, constitutional, philosophical perspective. Legal philosophy and constitutional law. And it's a great, I mean, it's a great read. You should read it. Bless you. Uh, but, but he's not arguing from biblical, theological, but the people that are attacking it aren't attacking it on philosophical, legal, constitutional grounds. Honestly, the news media doesn't have time for that. I need like a 30-second snippet of somebody with a title under their name that can just say something that's really uh, uh, exciting and, um, and uh, will froth people up because then they won't change off the channel and they'll just want to hear more. Or they'll be mad at that person or they'll agree with that person in their anger with that other person. And that's how it works, right? Uh, just the other day, I read an article in The New Yorker. And I've had several conversations with you guys about some of the stuff that's coming out in the news. And so anyway, I went on, I read this article in The New Yorker, and, and here's the emotionally charged title. This came out uh, a couple weeks ago in July this month. The, the article is titled, The Dobbs Decision, good start, has unleashed legal chaos for doctors and patients. And it's, I mean, the way I read that is how the article reads. It is like chocked full of emotive language and doom and gloom. And I mean, it's like the end of the world is happening, right? And it ends with this bleak prediction from this, this provider in Wisconsin who basically says, I think it's going to take lots of women dying before we get back at a reasonable place, to a reasonable place. That's how it ends. Drop the mic. There's no legal, philosophical, theological, any sort of lines of argumentation. It's just a bunch of quotes that are really scary and intense and emotive, right? And that's happening all over the place. And you know what? People on all sides of issues do this. I'm not just beating up on you know, pro-abortion advocates, right? This happens all over the political spectrum. But the author of that article was not interested in why so many people were opposed to abortion. In particular, she didn't seem to care at all about the biblical and theological grounds for so many people in our country being opposed to abortion or being in support of the Dobbs decision. She was clearly just straight up mad. Like, she was mad. This journalist was angry at the Dobbs decision, and it came out in her writing, and so she decided to use her journalistic pulpit to stir up feelings and emotions that might lend support seemingly to a pro-abortion legislative agenda, because that's where it is now, state and federal legislation, right? And you're seeing it all over the place, right? But let's not get sucked into that, okay? Sometimes closed-minded people will not just say, I'm closed-minded to, to, to that issue, but sometimes closed-minded people will actually stir up angry crowds and then turn around and blame their opponents for disturbing the peace. We see this on all sorts of cultural issues where people that particularly are against the church or Christian teaching or traditional biblical worldview on things, they won't like argue the merits of philosophical or theological you know, perspectives. They'll just basically get on social media and say, those, you know, hypocritical, and by the way, I'm a hypocrite sometimes too, none of us are perfect in the church, but it's always the same, it's like you hypocritical, hate-filled people that just want to harm everybody, and like, have you ever asked someone, like, have you ever witnessed a Christian, somebody that follows Christ, like, harm someone and like spew hate? And don't talk about Westboro Baptist, all right, they're, they're no, there's no Christianity, there's nothing Christian about that, okay? 
And that's always the ones that they put up on the, on the news feeds. It's like the Westboro Baptists. I'm like, they don't represent Christ. Have, have you ever known someone who's a Christian who's following Jesus? Just this, this hate monger? Most people are like, no. I'm like, well, why do you think that about the church? I'm not saying that we don't have problems and we don't have people professing to know the Lord who are saying things that they ought not say and having attitudes that they ought not have. All right, I'll stop there. Um, folks, as Christians, we are called to share the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins, rose again from the grave, ascended into heaven, seated on the right, at the right hand of the Father, so that we could have forgiveness, eternal life, joy, peace, power, righteousness, holiness, a reconciled relationship with God. We are called to preach that, that good news to the world, to every nation, every people group. And once people become Christians, the Great Commission says what? Then we're supposed to teach people to obey everything that Christ commanded. And that includes going to God's word to see what it has to say so that we know if we're teaching people to obey everything Christ commanded. All right? That's what we do. We preach and teach the whole counsel of God's word. And when we obey Christ in this way, folks, we will inevitably end up challenging certain closed-minded people whether they're our neighbors, our co-workers, people that visit our church, our family, whatever, you are going to step on toes if you obey Christ in this way. At some point, it's inevitable, and it'll end up challenging some closed-minded people who will simply choose to reject our message. And sometimes they'll go even further than that, and they'll get on social media or whatever, you know, and, and just try and stir up the crowd, the emotions, everything else. And we need to be prepared for that kind of rejection. And even opposition like we saw in the first part of our passage, we need to be prepared for this as Christians. The best thing we can do, listen to this, the best thing we can do when that happens and you come across someone, not the person that just rejects and says, I don't want anything to do with Jesus, right? You can't do anything about that. But the person that like comes after the church or comes after you as a Christian for holding certain viewpoints, right? The best thing you can do is just remain calm, be peaceful, peace-filled, peaceable people. Even when you're accused of hating and harming and wanting to harm others as a result of your worldview, as a result of, of your teaching or preaching. And the truth is, we wouldn't be sharing the truth with people unless we loved them. Like, I've had atheists point that out. Like, you must love me if you know, uh, well, it's the other way. It's if you believe that I'm going to be eternally separated from, from God because of my sin and that Jesus is the solution for that, how much would you have to hate me not to share that message with me? I've heard atheists make that point. So not everybody, you know, is going to hate you because you want to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. That doesn't mean they're going to believe in Jesus. But they understand. I think most people understand that it's out of love, not out of like, oh, we want to be right. We want to get bigger churches with, you know, get more money or what like that. That's just that's the stuff you see on the headlines. Right. But it's because we love people that we want to share that message of hope and see them find hope and join Christ. And then the second thing I want to talk about today, I'm going to do this quickly, is open minds receive Christian teaching. If closed minds reject Christian teaching, open minds receive Christian teaching. I don't mean that they're necessarily going to trust in Christ, but they will receive Christian teaching. They will listen. 
And this is what we see happening with Paul and Berea. So look with me at the last six verses, 10 through 15. It says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So things were getting hot in Thessalonica. And when they arrived in Berea, they went into the synagogue of the Jews there in Berea. Now, these people were more noble-minded. That word gives a sense of like an attitude. They were more um, noble in their attitude, more generous towards Paul and Silas and, and their, teach, their teaching, more welcoming of it, okay? So they're more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For, for and this could be, mean because, so this could be why Luke is calling them more noble-minded. Because they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, as a result of this examination and eagerness, therefore many of them believed, that is many of the Jews in the synagogue believed in Jesus, along with, again, a significant number of prominent Greek women and men. But, here's that contrast again in this part, but when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul 45 miles down the coastline in Berea also, they came there as well. And what are they doing? Agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then immediately the brothers sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and, re- and that's where we're going to go in two weeks, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. All right, let's unpack this, and then we'll close. In verse 10, we see Paul once again going straight to where? If there's a synagogue in that town, that's the first place Paul's going to go. Why? Because those people are steeped in God's word. They're steeped in the Hebrew scriptures. And, and he has a basis by which to communicate with them, to show them, hey, your sacred text here, this is what it's saying, all right? So he goes to the synagogue to share the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, with his fellow Jews. And as we saw back in verses 2 and 3, Paul lays out the evidence like he's presenting a case, showing how Jesus fulfills the Hebrew Scriptures through his death and resurrection. That's how he proves that he is the Christ, is through his death and resurrection. In verse 11, the Jews in Berea are called noble-minded again because they received the word with great eagerness. Do you understand? Yes, they've been teaching the same old way for you know, so long, but then here comes this, this Jewish man who knows his stuff. I mean, he was trained by Gamaliel. He's, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. You've read all this before. But he knows his stuff, and he opens up their scriptures, their scrolls, and he says, guys, you missed that. Missed Isaiah right here when he's talking about the suffering servant. That's the Messiah. You missed all these allusions. You missed all these references. You know, the, the bruising of the heel of the seed of the woman at the very beginning of Genesis 3. Right? You missed all this stuff. And, and he, he pulls it all together for them and says, Don't you see that the Christ, the anointed one, has to die because he has to die for your sin? If he comes conquering now, guess who's going to get judged? All of you guys. In fact, God's people first. The, the, the Israel first, and then the Gentiles. And so he's laying all this out. And they, they eagerly receive it, but they're not gullible. Where did they go to verify if this new teaching is true? Where do they go? They go to God's word. 
They go right back to what he's unpacking. They say, does this actually fit, or is he misinterpreting this? So they go back to the Hebrew Scriptures, and they look at it. They examine the Scriptures daily to verify what Paul is teaching. And as a result, many of the Berean Jews believed in Jesus as their resurrected Messiah. And even more Gentiles believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, too. So in, verses, uh, uh, in verse 13, we see Paul's opponents now. So we've seen people coming to faith in Christ. Word gets back 45 miles up the coastline to Thessalonica. And they're like, what? Almost the entire synagogue in Berea has turned to these Jesus followers? These Christians? We've got to do something about that. So they get on, I don't know, their donkey, horse, foot, whatever it is. And they come down 45 miles to Berea to try and once again cancel the Christian teaching and curb the spread of the gospel. And Paul eventually moves on to Athens. They don't want to stir things up more than they need to. Paul had already shared the gospel. He'd already presented his case, so he moved on to Athens. And he left two of his very best sidekicks, Timothy and Silas. He left them there to continue sharing the gospel, to continue preaching and teaching Christ, to continue strengthening and equipping the church, the brand new church in Berea. And the Bereans revealed their open-mindedness because why? Their mind was closed around the Hebrew Scriptures and their understanding of it. But when Paul brought that new message and said, hey, you're missing this, they were willing to open back up their minds, consider what Paul said, compare, and realize this is the more solid thing. This is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. And that's how they proved to be open-minded. And you know, based on my personal experiences, I would say that most people that you come across on a daily basis are more or less open-minded when it comes to spiritual conversations. I'm not kidding. Like, in Austin, Texas, there are a lot of spiritual people. Like, not everyone's just a, a dyed-in-the-wool, hardcore, materialist, atheist person who's just, like, you know, completely closed off to anything supernatural or any, you know, right? We're all just random atoms bumping into each other. That's it. There's no purpose. There's no ultimate meaning. There's no... You know, the universe is just going to die. When you, when you die, that's it. Like, you just don't meet a lot of those people, right? Unless you're on social media. Okay? So assuming you're not interacting with someone on social media, then you're actually having a conversation at the coffee shop, sitting down eyeball to eyeball with them. Most people are open to spiritual conversations, okay? And a couple years ago, I was working through this discipleship curriculum with one of our Wayside guys. And one of our assignments that we both had to do as we were going through this was to use this illustration that it taught you. It's called the bridge illustration. Y'all probably seen it before. But it's used this illustration to explain the gospel to a non-Christian person. And so I'm sitting there wondering who I should share the gospel with or ask if I could share the gospel with them. And so this barista that I got to be friends with at the cupcake shop where I office out of and have for like seven years, uh, she knew I was a Christian. She knew I was a pastor. I told her, I was like, I'm doing this discipleship study, and one of my assignments is I have to talk to someone who's not a Christian. I've got to explain the Christian faith in the entire Bible in less than five minutes on a napkin. Could I do that? And, like, she, she was super excited. She's like, bring it. Like, she just thought that all religions are just so confusing, and, like, you can't, you know, it's all theological. You've got to go to seminary to figure all this stuff out. So I actually got to sit down in less than five minutes. We had a little bit of follow-up questions that stretched two more minutes. But basically in five minutes, I got to use this illustration. I got to share the gospel. And I got to show her, you know, the creation, the fall, the redemption, the recreation, the restoration, the big narrative of Scripture and how the gospel, the personal work of Christ fit into that. And she asked some really great follow-up questions. And she, she uh, is, she's Iranian. 
so our, our Iranian friends can appreciate this. And she uh, had just kind of a loose affiliation with Islam. So she was kind of loosely holding on to Muslim beliefs. And, uh, and she was really interested in Christianity, right? Because she'd always heard about it. Um, but it was always sort of a taboo thing. So being able to talk to a Christian about what we believe was really exciting for her. Now, I don't know if she became a Christian or not. She left that job shortly thereafter. I haven't seen her since. But, um, but she, was, she was happy to have a spiritual conversation with me. And I even gave her the napkin I sketched the bridge illustration on. And she kept it. And I, again, I don't know if she ever came to faith in Christ, but here's the thing. She listened to my explanation of Christianity, and she even asked follow-up questions. And by doing so, she proved to be open-minded. So who are the open-minded people in your life? I mean, think about it and pray that God would soften people's heart to give them an open-mindedness to the things of, of Jesus, the gospel. And don't just assume that someone is closed-minded because they never talk about spiritual things. People feel awkward because most people don't even know what they think about spiritual things. A lot of people don't know what they think about the big questions in life. Where are we from? Where are we going? What's the meaning to life? What's the purpose to life? Uh, what happens after you die? Like, what, what, all these, like, what is ultimate truth? What are all these things? A lot of people have never even kind of stopped to figure that out for themselves. So sometimes it's awkward. But I think most people, if you're kind and engaging, they will engage with you in that. One of my mentors back up in Fort Worth when I first became a Christian, you know what he did? He would just like sit down like the barista or whoever at the coffee shop or the waiter or the whatever. And he would just say this. He'd go, can I ask you a, a personal question? Sometimes he'd say, can I ask you a spiritual question? And you know that people want to be known. Did you know that? Did you know people want you to ask questions about them and, and discover things about them? And so they're like, usually they were like, yeah, I don't mind if you ask me a personal or spiritual question. And he would just always ask this. He'd go, so where are you spiritually? And that would just open up these wonderful conversations, these spiritual conversations. And, uh, and, and, and he would listen to their beliefs and their experiences, but he would always be sure to ask, can I tell you what I believe about this? And can I tell you about Jesus? And, and most people are like, yeah, sure. And he would just share the gospel with them and say, that's, that's what I believe. That's where I found hope. You know? uh, and as I said before, I think most people are pretty open-minded about Christian teaching. And honestly, I think most people are starved for spiritual conversations. I think people are so sick of the little nitty, you know, back and forth social media stuff and news media blurbs. I think they're sick of it. And I think people are starving for spiritual conversations and eager to find something solid to bear down on in this life. And folks, that's exactly what we should expect of someone who hasn't found convincing answers to the big questions of life. That's exactly what we should expect of someone who hasn't found Jesus. A, a, an emptiness, a longing. So I began this sermon with a G.K. Chesterton quote. I might as well end with another one. So here you go. In a book called What's Wrong with the World? <laughs> I love that title. Uh, Chesterton writes this. He says, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. It's been found, in other words, challenging. In other words, biblical truth is challenging. So folks, we need to pray that God would open minds that will receive that challenge. So at the very least, listen and consider the claims of Christ. And ultimately, we pray by God's grace through faith. All right, next week, uh, we're going to have service Sunday. We're going to be hosting that picnic, and I hope you guys can make it. And then we'll jump into Athens the following week. So I hope you guys can be there for that.